listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. We start a new series today titled Common Good. And um, to be honest, I'm a little apprehensive. Um, I hope that I can communicate today what's on my heart, what I intend to communicate. It's, um, it's not the easiest thing maybe I've ever tried to say, but um, stick with me and we'll, we'll see if we can't make, make it through this together. So this, this passage of scripture from the end of Hebrews um, kind of presents us with a, a lot for us to think and kind of reflect on. And I, I want us to, to try and imagine that we were some of the original hearers of this, of this message, the original um, uh, recipients of this letter. So it's written to, you know, the Hebrews, right? So we aren't Jewish, I guess most of us aren't anyway. Um, so uh, in the New Testament, the, the books that are written by Paul are titled according to the recipients, like Romans is written to the Romans Right, Ephesians to the Ephesians, 1 Timothy to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy to Timothy Jr. Um, just kidding. That wasn't Timothy the second. There's a second letter to Timothy. Right. The other letters are titled according to their authors. Right. So 1 Peter, 2 Peter, Peter wrote those. Uh, James, James wrote that. 1 John, 2 John, Jude. Hebrews is kind of the odd one out. Right. It's titled according to its recipients. It's written to Hebrews, to Jewish folk, uh, but we don't know who wrote it. But remembering to whom it was written, I think, is very important. So um, let's think for a second kind of who these people are. So they are descendants of Abraham, but not just Abraham, because Abraham had a lot of descendants, right? Abraham had two sons that we know of, Ishmael and Isaac. Um, These are not Ishmael's descendants, but Isaac's. So Isaac had multiple kids too, though. He had Esau and Jacob. These aren't Esau's descendants. They're Jacob's, right? And then Jacob had a bunch of kids, lots of boys especially. And these are descendants of those kids. But in particular, right, there were two of those kids' um, families, um, Judah and Benjamin, who had kind of of stayed around. Uh, The rest had kind of been dispersed through war and um, destruction, but we still have um, Judah and Benjamin um, by, the time, by the time we get to whoever's writing this letter to the Hebrews. And so here's a people and they kind of know who they are. They know who their God is. You know, this is, we believe in the one God who kind of created all things and that God called Abraham and Abraham had a promise made to him that his descendants would become a nation and that through that nation that they would become, the whole world would be blessed. And of course, all of this is being fulfilled in the work of Christ. But the way in which it is fulfilled in the work of Christ is in no way how anybody anticipated it. There were twists and turns. There were ups and downs. There was the difficulties of life, of history, of nations, of power, of struggle, And so things are looking a lot different than what they could have possibly anticipated. So 
Hebrews gets presented to us as, as this argument, this sermon really, for the superiority of Jesus. So it kind of starts off not even referring to Jesus by name, but rather just by title. He's the divine son. And what we're told is that he's superior to the angels. So we can't follow the angels on this one. We're going to have to follow Jesus. But then it takes it a step further. We find out who this is. It's Jesus, this divine son. And it says that he's superior to Moses. Well, that's interesting. And then we carry it further. He's superior to Aaron. In fact, he is a priest. Jesus serves a priestly function. He's a, he's a mediator between humanity and God. But he's not, he's not like Aaron or any of Aaron's descendants. He's like some other priest, Melchizedek, this other character out of Genesis. It's an interesting story. And then it kind of carries it further to say that Jesus is superior to the sacrificial system. Now that's interesting. And there's this passage, it's in Hebrews chapter 6. It's a really interesting one. It's, I, th I think it's one of the most misunderstood passages of Scripture. It says, the one who has tasted the heavenly gift... Right, who has received the Spirit, if they turn away, there is no salvation for them. And there's no, there's no, kind, of, there's no kind of coming back. Right? So for them to, do, to turn away is to um, crucify Christ again. So I, I don't know everybody's tradition, kind of what churches you've experienced in the, in the past, but that's, that's, that's an interesting one. Now, the fancy word for that is apostasy, we say. Um, where I grew up, we just called it backsliding, right? Kind of no longer kind of living for the Lord. Like I once lived for the Lord, but now I don't long, no longer live for the Lord. I, I'd made a confession. I'd made a decision to follow Christ. I even sang the song, I have decided to follow Jesus. But then I decided to not follow Jesus anymore. And so now things were were a mess, right? And so that, you know, I had friends, you know, who were Presbyterian and they believed in the perseverance of the saints that it was all God's work and there was nothing that they could do to ever step out of God's will because God's in control. And so God's will is always accomplished. So they didn't have to worry about that. And I had other friends who were Baptists and they believed in kind of eternal security that, that they might be doomed up until the point that they made that confession of faith. But once they made that confession of faith, they were sealed forever. Once God's child, always God's child. So they didn't have to worry about it either. But let me tell you, this little Pentecostal kid, we worried about it all the time, right? Somebody said, do you believe in backsliding? I'm like, we don't just believe in backsliding, we practice it. <laughs> Like we do it all the time. I was, I was having to come, come to faith again and again and again and again. I got saved every summer at youth camp. I got saved at every revival. I know some people had been born again, but I'd been born again and again and again and again. So, but I think, and all of that to say, I think that passage from Hebrews 6 was often used from, from both of those sides to argue this is how this works, right? But it does seem like there's some people who are turning away. So we thought, well, there's, there's evidence. Some people turn away. That could be you. So why don't you come now so you can make sure. <laughs> Do you know that you know that you know? So come forward, just in case you had backslidden. I think that passage of Scripture is about something else. We have to remember to whom 
the letter is written. It's written to Hebrews. And what they would be turning away from. These are Hebrews turning away from Christ, who have already been told is the way, right? So to turn away from Christ is to turn back towards the sacrificial system. To not follow this new Melchizedek kind of priest, but to go back to the priest of Aaron. To go back to the law of Moses. To go back to a system that has already become redundant because Christ has come and fulfilled those things. And so the reason there is no salvation for those who turn back, according to Hebrews 6, is because they're trying to just keep the Jewish calendar. They're trying to keep the Jewish festivals. They're trying to keep the Jewish sacrifices. And it's those things in which there is no salvation. It doesn't mean at any given point that anybody who turns to Christ isn't forgiven. It doesn't mean at any given point that anybody turns to Christ just receives the love that's already being offered, right? Christ's love for us is always on display. It is always on offer. Sometimes we reject it, but it's always coming toward us. God's grace is always active. And if we try and follow that old system, Hebrews says, There's no salvation there. In fact, the story will unfold there from 6, 7, 8, 9. It kind of climaxes in chapter 10 where it says, look, no sacrifice remains. Now, on on the one hand, that seems obvious to us. I'm imagining none of you have sacrificed an animal as an act of worship like you thought, oh, I've sinned, I've done something wrong, let's see if I can catch a rabbit and kill it, and then the Lord will have forgiven me, right? That's not in our realm of imagination. So in some ways, yeah, we've all moved away from it. But we do seem to have substituted something else for Christ. When Moses was trying to remind the new generation about what had happened on Mount Horeb. What he says is, I want you to remember when you saw the fire that there was no form in it. That the fire had no form. That there was no just given shape that we could hold on to and kind of concretize and catechize and then just say, well, now we have God. Our God is not so reducible. And again, kind of growing up, we longed for holiness. We longed to be like Christ. But we substituted holiness for morality because we weren't quite sure how we could measure Christ-likeness. So instead, we measured morality. We had a list of things that we believed in. We had a list of things that we practiced. We had a list of things that we didn't believe in. We had a list of things that we didn't practice. In fact, the list of things that we didn't practice really defined us so much, right? If you ask like a 12-year-old version of me, um, are you a person of faith? Are you a Christian? Do you believe in God? I would have said yes. And they would say, what do you believe? I would have said, well, we don't smoke and we don't drink and we don't chew That's chewing tobacco, if you didn't know what that was. And we don't go out with girls who do. (laughs) 
Um, that, that, so we were, we were so defined by what we didn't do because, I think, we had substituted morality for holiness. We thought that there was some system that we could live by and that would always be right. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that kind of trusting in the trustworthiness, trusting in the trustworthiness, kind of trusting in Scripture or in the tradition um, or in the faith is somehow incorrect. But I do believe it is incomplete. That uh, unless we have a, a, a vital, living, existential relationship with God, all of those other things can just become trappings. And I mean the best things can become trappings. We see this actually in the Old Testament at times, right? They had their festivals, they had their holy days, they had the, you know, the calendar that they followed, they had their sacrificial system, and they thought because they had those things, they must always be right with God. But sometimes they were doing some horrific things. They were, they were taking advantage of the poor. They were, they were uh, ignoring the strangers. They were marginalizing folks. And God's like, your sacrifices are a stench in my nostrils. It, it makes me sick. This is what the prophets say to Israel sometimes. Imagine that. Imagine an act of worship making God ill. So let me, let me, let me translate that for us into a, a contemporary dynamic. What that would mean is if we live lives that are inconsistent with the spirit of Christ, with Christ's love and Christ's mercy and Christ's grace, then when we come in to places like these, holy places, and we read from the holy scriptures and we sing songs about a holy God and we clap along or we stand or we raise our hands, God's like, that stinks. Because, because I see how you're living and how you're living isn't matching what you're saying. All of this stuff, all of our structures are up for critique. In fact, all of our structures could be thrown into the fire and a lot of our structures thrown into the fire would be destroyed by the fire. Now maybe some of them will be purified by it. Maybe something will come out of it, something new. But if the Hebrews, not the Hebrews to whom Hebrews is written, but their ancestors, right? If the ancient Hebrews had, had locked on just to a solid structure, they would have never been able to make it through the wilderness. So they, they didn't even have a building. They had a tent. And in their tent, right, they could move. And they followed, it says they followed a, a, a pillar of cloud by day and a, a pillar of fire by night. So that, that mobility, that willingness to move represents something at the very heart of our faith. Things change. Change is the constant in the universe. That's a, I know that's a little oxymoronic to say it like that, right? 
that change is the constant in the universe. The one thing we know is nothing stays the same. What do we do with passages of Scripture like, I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever? I don't think what that means is that somehow God is static. Right? Aristotle argued that the, the ultimate cause of the universe, the first cause, like everything happens because something made it happen. And then if we trace it back, something made that happen. If you trace it back, something made it happen, right? And you can trace all actions eventually back to the initial cause. And there's the, that first cause Aristotle called God. But for Aristotle's first cause, his concept of God is of an unmoved mover. Something that's static. That doesn't seem to be who our God is. It's not the God of the Hebrews who heard them cry and responded. It's not the one who was on the move and said, come and follow me, right? Our God, there's a, another uh, Baptist theologian, I really love him, his name's Clark Pinnock. He said, he said, God is not Aristotle's philosophical concept of an unmoved mover, but rather God, the Christian God, the real God, is the most moved mover. And as he moves, he's calling us to follow him. And it's in his movements and our movements with him that we become more like him. We even talk about it sometimes in our tradition. We'll talk about a move of God. Have you heard that phrase before? There's been a move of God, right? It's because God's on the move. And we, we, we talk about God's movement in our songs. We, we say, you know, there's a... An ancient prayer, actually, that opens up Christian worship services that's an invitation for the Spirit to come. That, that, that's the idea of movement. And so herein lies this passage of Hebrews, and I want you to think about this. If, <laughs> if those Hebrews to whom Hebrews is written, right, some, some of the earliest, earliest Christians believed and practiced anything close to what we do about our, our determination to always be the same, to never change. If they had that mentality, they would not have followed Christ. Think about that. If they had that mentality that this is the way it's always been, this is the way it always will be, then when Peter had his vision about eating animals, Peter would have said, sorry, that can't be of God because I've got this text that tells me differently. When they talked about the inclusion of the Gentiles, when they talked about justification by faith, when they talked about Christ being a sacrifice, but not like the sacrifice that takes place on the altar of sacrifice in the city. Hebrews says that he is the sacrifice that takes place outside the city. It is a different system. It's altogether other. And that's what we're being called into. Several, several weeks ago, I preached a sermon and I, you know, I compared... Um, Jesus' sacrifice to C.S. Lewis's uh, Aslan, the lion, right? So right, the, the lion's going to stand in for Edward, who, who's been found guilty of, you know, breaking the rule. And so Edward could be killed, 
but instead Aslan comes and dies on his behalf. But it's not Aslan that requires the death, it's the wicked witch, right? It's the white witch who requires it. And when Aslan dies on the stone table, the table of sacrifice, it's not simply that his death, this is in the, in the fiction, right? That his death is just some simple substitution, some economy of exchange. It breaks the stone table so that now no sacrifice can happen again. Doesn't that sound like Hebrews? I guarantee you C.S. Lewis had already read Hebrews when he wrote that novel. <laughs> and when the stone table breaks, that's a lot like Hebrews 10 that says no sacrifice remains. And it opens us up to now living this wild, woolly, amazing life to go new places, to see things afresh, to be prepared for something different. Growth requires change. And our God, Hebrews tells us, is a consuming fire. Fire doesn't stay the same. There's a popular um, terminology these days. I hear it a lot. People talk about deconstructing their faith. Has anybody heard that term? Just none of you? A couple of you? Deconstructing their faith. It's, it's mostly used, I, I hear it a lot, especially by younger people, you know, in late teens, 20s, 30s. Granted, my context, my day-to-day -day context is at the college, so everybody seems to be 18 to 22. All right, I realize we're not all 18 to 22. I mean, myself included. But it, it happens to people in the 30s, their 40s, their 50s too. What they mean by it is what they used to believe, they don't believe anymore. They, they've stopped believing in that, and now they're trying to find something new. But the challenge I have with the terminology is they're imagining that their, their agency is at 100% and they're just making all these decisions for themselves, which that's not true. Doubt doesn't function that way. Doubt is not simply a tool at our disposal. With all due respect to Rene Descartes, he was wrong. <laughs> um, it's not a tool at our disposal. We doubt for all sorts of reasons. In the Gospel of Luke, after the resurrection, there, there were disciples who were doubting whether or not the resurrection had happened. And they doubted it for a few reasons. One, they doubted it because the only people who had seen it were women. That's not a good reason to doubt it. If a woman sees something and testifies to it and it's true, that you shouldn't doubt it just because it's coming from a woman. The other reason they doubted it is because it's kind of nonsensical, isn't it? How many of you know somebody who's died? Right? And, and where are they now? They're dead. That's, that's what happens. Dead people stay dead. We know how that works. And so it seems, it seems nonsense. Sometimes the faith to us seems nonsensical. And it's hard for us to believe it. We have intellectual roadblocks. Other times... Our doubt comes from a different place altogether. It's not because we're sexist or because we're intellectual. It's because we've been hurt. God is not who we thought God was. Because if God was who we thought God was, we wouldn't have been hurt that way. We were hurt by our families. We were hurt by our friends. We were hurt by our church. 
We feel hurt by God. And that sense of doubt is dark. How are we supposed to respond to those sorts of things? There's another type of doubt. There's a doubt that comes when we realize how good the gospel is, that there's nothing you can do that can disqualify you from the love of God, and that all you have to do is just receive that love. Like, you, there's nothing really for you to do. God's forgiveness is already coming at you. If Jesus died for the sins of humans, there's nothing you can do to Jesus now. It's not like you can, like, re-crucify Jesus. That's been done, <laughs> right? There's, there's nothing you can do to try and earn your forgiveness. That's already been freely provided, your forgiveness has been freely provided to you. It's ridiculous. Like, who would believe that? The, the joy and the goodness of the gospel seems unbelievable. And that can create doubt. Um, there is a, one of my favorite Christian writers is a guy named Frederick Beekner. He just passed away this week. He was 96. And I, um, I read this beautiful, it wasn't quite an obituary. It was more like a an homage to, to, to Fred. It was published in a magazine this week. I just wanted to share a little bit of it with you. It says this. This is the person writing about Fred. I was raised in a religious context that emphasized certainty, moments of decision, and the clarity of Scripture over experience. Some of you might identify with that. Those emphases are not so much incorrect as incomplete. I said that earlier. I was mimicking them. There's nothing wrong with wanting to stand on a firm foundation or trying to explore, explore the world from a stable base. I want to say that again. There's nothing wrong with wanting to stand on a firm foundation and explore the world from a stable base. But life is full of sharp edges and it punctures our illusions of control. Somebody's in a car accident and they're gone. Somebody gets a diagnosis. Somebody's in a relationship and somebody else breaks the relationship. There's no way you can anticipate that and there's nothing you can do with it. And then now, where's God in that? At least that's, um, this person says, at least that's what I found as I went away to college in a big city and began to wrestle with doubt and started working in ministry. In any case, I quickly learned that the world was much bigger than I had ever imagined and that I needed a more roomy story that, uh, than one that I'd been given. Beekner, this is who I'm talking about, taught me that faith is not certainty, at least not the certainty that keeps you in control. Belief requires vulnerability, honesty, facing the darkness without and within. That journey, facing the darkness outside and the darkness inside, isn't easily taken. In a world where both wonderful and terrible things happen, doubt makes a lot of sense. There is doubt hard on the heels of every belief, writes Beekner in his book, The Secrets of Darkness, and there is fear hard on the heels of every hope. And many holy things, many holy things, this is Beekner saying this, lie in ruins because the world has ruined them and we have ruined them. End quote. Back to the Article, even as he taught us to be comfortable with the darkness, he never allowed us to lose our memory of the light. And this is where I think Beekner can be so helpful. 
and back to my description of deconstruction, deconstruction is not so much something you do, it's something you experience. It just happens. Because the structures that we formed, or maybe even the structures we've been given, when faced with the harshness of reality, don't hold up. And so as they start to fall apart, our questions then rise, is all of this even true? And the, the answer is, there is a truth to be found, and that truth is in Christ. It's in God, who is an all-consuming fire, and who is not reducible to somebody's description of God. And it requires your own journey into who God really is. Um, he says, Beekner refused the hubris of despair. That is, the, the confidence of despair. Sometimes people get overconfident in their doubt. You run into that a lot at college, let me tell you. Sophomores. <laughs> you know, sophomore comes from two words, Sophia, which means wisdom, and moron, which means fool. <laughs> a wise fool. That's a sophomore. They've read a book or half a book, and now they know the answer. And they're going to tell you, hey, Dr. Waddell, guess what I know? And I'm like, yeah, tell me, buddy. <laughs> Live a little. Struggle a little. Come back and we'll talk. Speaking, this lastly here, speaking of Beekner, he, ch he challenged my unexamined certainties, but he did so gently, painting a more beautiful picture of the life of faith. He wrote so honestly about how it feels to be human, the loneliness, the confusion, the clumsy struggle to receive the love that we are given uh, or the love in a way, excuse me, the clumsy struggle to receive the love we are given or to give love in a way that can be received. That's really what we're after. We want to receive the love that we've been given from the Almighty God. And we want to be able to give that love away in a way that it can be received. And that, my friends, requires fresh, new attentiveness to the Spirit. So we read scriptures here. We practice things like communion and baptism. But we're doing this not just because it's some ritual or some practice or because, because I said these particular words or because I came so many times or because I stood or sang or sang louder. No, it's, it's, it's about faith and, and faith, faith is just not about certainty. If you're certain of something, it's not faith that you have. It's certainty that you have. Faith, uh, uh, Paul Tillich says that the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. So we, doubt and faith, are like light and shadow. They're going to work together. And we shouldn't celebrate one much more than the other. And we shouldn't trust one more than the other. Because our trust is not in our own faith or in our ability to doubt. Our trust should be in God. And it's not about just always figuring those things out, but, but leaning into this life. And we can expect maybe sometimes that the all-consuming fire that we actually do follow to sometimes challenge our structures of what we think is right and wrong.
if, if we're never challenged by our life with God, then I wonder whether or not we're having a life with God. Because I think a life with God would cause us to change, to become different than we were before. And sometimes that difference is significant. But that's not something to fear. And I think that is what all of this is really about. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.